fact, if I were to turn my latest book into a series of videos, then YouTube would have them removed. Believe me, I have tried. I would be given strikes. I'd eventually have my channel taken down. There are some investigations which the Ministry of Truth will not tolerate, and subjects like the true cause of polio and what actually happened, or rather, did not happen in Auschwitz, are some of them. Exile to Aftermath continues my series on intel psyops and hoaxes throughout the decades. It is obviously a blacklisted read. Other topics covered in here is my series on the atomic bomb hoax, as well as the Black Dahlia murder hoax. I've been at this for a long time now, and I do work very hard at it, turning out new content each and every week on my website, The Unexpected Cosmology. Everything I put out is for free. One of the ways that you can support my ministry is by visiting Sacred Word Publishing and purchasing any one of my books. The Hidden Hand of Camelot and It's Only Murder If They're Dead follows the intel psyops and hoaxes of the 60s, while The Angel She Desires unveils my research into subjects like Serpent Seed and The Only Begotten Daughter of Elohim. Also, please consider leaving a review. I do appreciate your support. Shalom. know how to introduce something like this to my youtube audience those who know me Noel, the writer uh, for a very long time i have been passionate about hoaxes and showing how the entire world is a stage written by uh, scripts by intel the problem is is that on online communities such as youtube i get strikes i get my videos taken down most of these hoaxes are very controversial and dealing with subject matter that is not particularly acceptable to the Ministry of Truth. So I have basically given up uh, commenting and, and recording a lot of these, even though I put a lot of my effort on them. For the people who do read my work who come to my website, they know that I put a lot of papers out on hoaxes. And I'm trying to find some that get the point across where people can see in a very practical way how the world is a stage and how everything is run by Intel and it's all a hoax, uh, but it's not controversial. Uh, so hopefully I won't get a strike over this. This is called the Iceman cometh. The vanilla ice was a hoax. And we see there some brilliant quotes by a true poet. Uh, vanilla ice says, Theirs goes ding, 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 uh, dingy, ding, ding. <laughs> Ours goes ding, 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 dingy, ding, ding. It's not the same. And then the great Millie Vanelli, Girl, you know it's, girl, you know it's, girl, you know it's. Starting on page three. Just as we become aware of a shooting star only when, after inhabiting the ethereal realm for an untold lifetime, it blazes briefly and at the blink of an eye through the nighttime sky. 
beautifying our lives outside as well as within. So it was with the hip-hop poet Robert Matthew Van Winkle. Only the world intimately knew him as Vanilla Ice. He came and he went through a revolving door wearing a sparkly American flag jacket, but not without reshaping the musical landscape in nearly every 90s boombox and sometimes even in our parents' four-disc rotating CD player. It can be truly be said that I never owned a copy. But come on, To the Extreme sold over 6 million copies in as little as 14 weeks. Stop, collaborate, and listen. Why the hate, yo? Also, Van Winkle was an actor, as the Vanilla Ice story was an obvious intel script from the very get-go. The fabricated narrative was always intended as an American one, for starters. His mostly female audience were expected to drop a beat for the excesses of capitalism and greed, as well as an industry brimming with fake musicians who sell their soul as well as their chatterbox for dolls, cereal boxes, and Saturday morning cartoons. I have yet to meet a woman who has confessed to owning a dress-up ice doll, but they arrived in many varieties, and indeed they did sell. He straight up told us his purpose in his hastily written autobiography, quote-unquote his autobiography. Robbie Van Winkle and Vanilla Ice are the American dream come true. Vanilla Ice, Ice by Ice. So far as my knowledge goes, I am the first to make the claim that the rise and fall of the Iceman was an Intel movie, which is surprising. No, it is quite shocking. How is it that people still think the man from Miami, or was it Dallas, was in any way legitimate? Have you taken the time to watch his interviews lately now that you're woke and also a grown-up? Serious question. I suggest you do. Every single interview over a stunningly short six to nine month period plays the same. Van Winkle looks and talks like an agent. Well, maybe he doesn't walk or bust a move like an agent. Respect. Or as Ice put it, my main thing is music. It's what I do. Clearly, the white boy had talent. The fact remains, however, that every single interview he's in is drenched with a certain sense of self-preservation. Perhaps even overcompensation. I'm guessing it has little to do with white guilt and everything with not wanting to be found out. I'd probably act the same way if I were pressed to convince every teenager in America, the UK, Eastern Europe, and Japan that I dressed in leather chaps this one time and moseyed into a Miami gay bar like I owned the place, which never happens, just so we're clear. We are told, however, that Ice pulled the equivalent at an all-black club in Dallas, winning over the crowd immediately, but even that was a backstory setup. Were any other black people outside of Deshay and his production crew impressed? The equivalent would be like me telling Good Morning America that I won over a crowded gay bar who in turn became my all-gay backup dancers, when in fact everyone present were actors on assignment from Langley. Yo, VIP, let's kick it. Ding, 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 ice, ice, baby. I can't believe I just did that. The Wikipedia claims he was born in Dallas, Texas, without making any mention of discrepancy, when in fact the ice, ice, uh, ice by ice autobiography insists that he entered the world in a Miami suburb. Well, which is it? The confusion was intentional. A driving point, point to the narrative is that Intel creates backstories for their actors all the time. With Vanilla Ice, though, they wanted you to see the sleight of hand for yourself, and even the media was in on the act. 
What everyone does seem to agree upon is that he was born on Halloween in 1967 and that a biological father was never identified. Van Winkle derives from the family name of the man whom his mother was married to at the time of his birth, though their relationship only lasted a few years. After completing my Marilyn Monroe paper, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if Robbie was American royalty and bred for a specific purpose. We are not told who the father is because it once again plays into the intended psyop. IMDB can't even get the details of his father right. They have his father leaving when he was four years old, making him a biological Van Winkle after all. How is it that no two biographers seem to agree? His mother, Camilla Beth, is claimed to have German and English ancestry and is identified as a Dickerson. Dickerson is actually of Scottish origin, but whatever. Van Winkle is a Dutch name originating from the lowlands of Germany, which is about as white as they come. Is the, vanilla, is the Vanilla Ice PSYOP a play on Washington Irving's Rip Van Winkle? Irving was a Freemason, in case you were wondering, and once again, his short story dangles the ongoing agenda like a noose. We are told of a sleepy village in the Catskills pre-revolution, which transforms from unanimously supporting King George III to voting for an American president, and in as little as 20 years, telling us how quickly they can flip the script on a whim. It would take a man falling asleep for two decades, in this case, uh, Van Winkle, to prove himself immune to their psyop. Look it up for yourself. The very phrase Rip Van Winkle insinuates, quote, a person who is oblivious to changes, especially in social attitudes or thought, unquote. Is that the character whom Robbie was playing? We see here on the Wikipedia, it says, afterwards he grew up moving between Dallas and Miami, where his new stepfather worked at a car dealership. We are then told of the many stepfathers who came and went during his upbringing. Back at the Wikipedia, though, his most important contributor appears to be the stepfather who flew Van Winkle back and forth between Dallas and Miami over the matter of a car dealership. Still some three decades later, and we are not given any names to work with. None that I can find. You'd think somebody would figure them out by now, but no. We are apparently never expected to, making the story of a fabrication a fabrication within another fabrication as intended. And I should have pointed out in this that we live in a time where you look at the media, it's all copy and paste, copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste. You don't see that with Vanilla Ice. It's like you go to all these different sources, they're all different. All of them. I couldn't find any sources that agreed. And no, I am not making any of this up. Look how journalist Jeff uh, Weiss put it at The Ringer. The story of Vanilla Ice has long been shrouded in a fog of shoddy reporting breathless tall tales and harmless self-deception a white rap uh rashomon if the bandit battled bebop and rocksteady he's doing a little teenage mutant ninja turtle uh comparison there how adorable everyone's narrative is slightly askew which adds to the charm you would just print the legend if you could figure out exactly what it is the media gets it the intended psyop that is FYI, Weiss is a Yiddish name. It's not simply the actor behind Vanilla Ice, which is shrouded in a fog. The ice narrative is set up in such a way as to be slightly skewed for everyone involved. Because our entire world, as presented to us in the news, is an illusion. Will the real Vanilla Ice please stand up? Speaking of which, you will have to try your darndest not to roll your eyes when I inform you that Vanilla Ice was discovered on Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard. I'm not the one making this up. 
the people lifting the stage curtains are. And so here's what we are told, returning to the Wikipedia again. Let's see, do I want to read this whole thing? I'm not going to read this whole thing. Let's see if I summarize it. Amazing how Wiki is still going with the three-time champion motocross story when every media outlet in 1990 was incapable of tracking his wins for Honda down. But whatever. Let's see, what do they say on that? Oh, in 1985, he was focusing all his energy on motocross, winning three championships. Let's just go with it. The leap of logic here is that breaking his ankle somehow led to perfecting his beatboxing and breakdancing skills, making them his own, you know. All the while, his ankle was still healing. Amazing. I suppose if my arm were in a sling, I'd spend my spare hours attempting to break into professional baseball or perhaps the world of underground arm wrestling. Sounds legit. Maybe join a local bowling league while I'm at it. Oh, yeah, let's just read that next. It says, after breaking his ankle during a race, Ice was not interested in racing professionally for some time, using his spare time to perfect his dance moves and creating his own while his ankle was healing. That makes sense. Moving on, we are then told that somebody only identified to us as Squirrel dared Vanilla to visit an all-black club in the south side of Dallas and then go on stage during open mic. The Iceman never backs down from a challenge and loses. This was one of those instances. About the same time, in 1990, Kevin Costner directed and starred in a movie called Dances with Wolves, which told the story of a white guy who attempts to become a Native American so as to preserve the people from obscurity, essentially becoming their savior, but then is uh, persecuted by the establishment for doing so. Same story. Rather than getting beat down by the back alley world of 80s hip-hoppers simply for showing face, Vanilla was not only praised by the all-black crowd, but then guys like Dishay, Zero, and Earthquake literally stopped everything in order to turn the rap world over to a white guy and work for him, simply on the basis that black girls could shake their booty and he could hold his own, apparently. Word to your mother. Even the club City Lights sounds suspicious. According to Jeff Weiss again, here's what we read. The property had already weathered several boom and bust cycles. Originally a segregated post-war movie palace christened the Force Theater, it was alternately transformed into a jazz cellar, a recording studio, and the stage for legendary seances uh, by B.B. King, Wilson Pickett, and Prince. By the end of Reagan's second term, a local entrepreneur named Tommy Kwan had resurrected it as the hip-hop epicenter of North Texas. From Thursday night into the break of dawn, Sunday morning, the dance floor rumbled with a thousand rowdy but cheek revelers. They freaked in hip-hop locks, the Roger Rabbit, and the WAP. The wash shook from Houdini, LL Cool J, Too Short, NWA, and the DFW's own Feel a Fresh crew. Late at night, when you could feel the bass deep in your sternum, the spot would erupt to the seismic shake of Nemesis's regional anthem, Oak Cliff. To recap, City Lights was at one time a jazz cellar and alternatively a recording studio which had been transformed even earlier from a movie theater. Its Reagan-era reincarnation was a project of a certain Tommy Kwan. Yeah, an Asian entrepreneur which dreams of resurrecting City Lights into the hip-hop epicenter of North Texas. As if that's not suspicious. Kwan is a Chinese name. Tommy Kwan, though? That doesn't even sound legit. 
I had to look this up, but pop locks refers to a girl with the capability of popping her butt out real hard when dancing. Weiss apparently has far more street creds than I do. Also, the Roger Rabbit refers to a developing heroin addictive habit rather than the Robert Zemeckis movie. I read somewhere that Squirrel is directly responsible for getting ice wasted on a concoction called the runny nose, whatever that is. Though it is true that I have never grown up in the hard knock streets of Dallas, Texas, City Lights is beginning to sound more and more like a CIA front by the minute. Jumping over to a February 3rd, 1991 article in the New York Times, and we read the following. Vanilla Ice did emerge from the black scene. His manager, Tommy Kwan, discovered him working the crowds at the now-defunct City Lights. Earthquake, Vanilla Ice's DJ and co-writer, was the club's house disc jockey, and its doorman, Big E, and Chili are now his bodyguards. Ice's background dancers, all black, were recruited from City Lights. Hence, his touring company recreates the club scene from which he blossoms. So let me get this straight. Tommy Kwan opens up this so-called hip-hop epicenter in North Texas, sponsoring the likes of LL Cool J and NWA, and then dumps everything soon as the first white boy busts a rhyme during open mic. Not only that, but its DJ, its bouncers, and its entire dancing crew run off with the same person. And the Van Winkle sensation is being sold to us as somehow organic? Right. Already by 1991, City Lights was a defunct, uh, was defunct, reminding us once again that Intel needed a storefront window to give their Vanilla Ice project a backstory and make it look legitimate. It is incredible. It is incredibly difficult finding professional pictures of Vanilla's right-hand man, DJ Deshay, but I managed to track one down. That is Deshay, all right, dressed as a fairy on The Price is Right. Still picking up acting gigs from time to time, I take it. I also managed to find an interview where not even Deshay can get Vanilla's origin story straight. Nobody can. According to Deshay, Vanilla didn't act nicely if he, or didn't ask nicely if he could play one of his tapes. After Vanilla attempted to reach across the turntable and play his cassette by force, Deshay shoved him away and Vanilla, wait for it, pulled the Karate Kid pose. That's not the Vanilla Ice that I know. I'm pretty sure only suburban white kids pull a Daniel LaRusso, and usually during a game of dodgeball. But what do I know? Perhaps it is a Southside pastime. Anywho... After Deshay threatened to kick his ass, we then read, Vanilla's manager sensed the apparent chemistry between the two hotheads and suggested that they both work together. Why did Deshay agree to do it? Well, money. Wait, Tommy Kwan was already Vanilla's manager before he stepped up to the open mic? Say it ain't so. I thought Van Winkle was discovered at City Lights only after Squirrel dared him to go on stage and then Tommy Kwan took him on as a client. But that's not how Deshay recalls Vanilla's origin at all. From there, his off-kilter recollections continue. We read, What the world don't know, says Deshay, is it's like we created Frankenstein. Vanilla Ice was not a rapper. A guy named Chocolate wrote the lyrics, and me and Earthquake did the beats. We put Vanilla Ice together. My little brother Jake taught him how to dance back in 1988. Vanilla Ice is Frankenstein's monster, and Deshay had a part in creating him. Hold on. Let me get this straight. 
When showing up to open mic night, Ice was not a rapper. Check. A guy named Chocolate wrote the lyrics to his songs. Check. Deshay and Earthquake did the beats. Check. Not only did Deshay, Chocolate, and Earthquake put Ice together, his little brother Jake taught him how to dance back in 1988. So much for hurting his ankle in motocross and the breakdancing montage to follow. Or that other story where his skills landed him in a group of shopping mall breakdancers at the age of 13. Ice, when he earned himself the nickname Vanilla by the other black dancers. I wonder why Deshay can only find a job as the fairy queen on The Price is Right. Getting back to the Wikipedia, we are given another origin story entirely. In January 1987, Ice was stabbed five times during a scuffle outside of City Lights. After spending 10 days at the hospital, Ice signed a contract with the owner of City Lights, Tommy Kwan, and his management company, Ultrax. Two years later, Ice would open for uh, EPMD, Ice-T, Sir Mix-a-Lot, and Stop the Violence Tour. Kwan saw commercial potential in Ice's rapping and dancing skills. Buying studio time with Kwan's earnings from City Light, they recorded songs that had had been perfected on stage by Ice. Ice was stabbed five times during a scuffle outside of City Lights. I can only assume this was the world-famous butt-stabbing incident. But then notice what, when it happened. In January of 1987, an entire year before Deshay's younger brother taught him how to dance. Makes sense now that I think about it. Try that Daniel LaRusso move out in Southside Dallas, and you're liable to get knifed in the butt. For whatever reason, that is never explained to us. Or, for whatever reason, that is never explained to us. I signed a contract with Quan only after spending 10 days at the hospital. Nothing that I'm reading adds up. Tell me, does it add up for you? Every article that I read about Vanilla Ice only seems to add to my confusion. Consider an October 17, 1990 article in the New York Times, which has Vanilla Ice being stabbed on five separate occasions, not just one. And it says, and he, he's actually quoting here, I got stabbed five times. He said, the last time I, got, I lost half the blood in my body. When I woke up, I felt like God had given me a second chance. That was four years ago. Since then, I prayed every single day at least twice. When stating that he was stabbed five times, he was insinuating that the stabbings happened on five separate occasions. You have to keep reading. He says, the last time I lost half the blood in my body. See what I mean? The last time. Was he stabbed four four consecutive times in the butt and then on the fist stab, he lost half the blood in his body? No, that's not how his statement reads. He even accredits his second chance at life to God, but if you keep on reading so many pages, you will see who that God is. Yes, you probably guessed it already. Same God as we find on the funny money. This is the Very Times article, which has Ice breaking both of his ankles, by the way. Read it for yourself. He says, I broke my left ankle three times, he recalled. The last time I broke both ankles uh, and was told there was an 80% chance I would never walk again. I went from wheelchair to crutches doing a lot of physical therapy and had two rounds of surgery. Now my ankles work perfectly and I could dance better than ever. Though I wanted to many times, I decided not to get back on a motorcycle. So let me get this straight. After breaking his left ankle on two separate occasions, he then broke both ankles at the same instance. 
he was furthermore given a 20% chance of ever walking again, or an 80% chance of never walking again. But after a spiel in a wheelchair, and then crutches and physical therapy and two rounds of surgery and God, the Iceman was capable of dancing better than every black person in Texas. The miracles of science truly are astounding. And this is what he says. I went there with a friend to hear the music and dance, and without telling me, the friend entered me in a contest, he said. Other bands had set up with a lot of equipment, but I went up with just a microphone and busted a rhyme off my head and won. Afterwards, I found out that people from Warner Brothers, Motown, and MCA Records were there. I signed a contract with my manager the very next day. That's the problem with improv actors. So many discrepancies. Not even Vendela can get his own story straight. That same Times article has Ice getting signed by Quan the day after the open mic competition. Getting stabbed five times in the butt or for the fifth time in the butt, depending on who's telling the butt story, and then spending 10 days in the hospital before signing never even comes into it. Also, this is the first I've heard of Warner Brothers, Motown, and MCA Records listening in to the rhyming session. Why is there such an emphasis on Def Jam? This is what we read in the Wikipedia. On the basis of Ice's good looks and dance moves, Public Enemy tried to convince their producer, Hank Shockley, to sign Ice to Def Jam. But Ice later signed a contract with SBK Records in 1990. SBK remixed and re-recorded Hooked under the title To the Extreme. The reissue contained new artwork and music. According to Ice, SBK paid him to adopt a more commercial, conventional appearance. This led Ice to later regret his business agreements with SBK. You see... We are even told that Public Enemy wanted to sign Ice to Def Jam. Why is that little nugget even in his bio? To explain his artificial relationship with Flavor Flav, or Flavor Flav, excuse me, on the Arsenio Hall show? Spooks all swim in the same circles, you know. One might begin to think that nearly everyone wanted a part to play in the Vanilla Ice PSYOP. But more than likely, Plantation Masters pulled in the leash from those who were already pimping out their own people for success. Def Jam was a prestigious label for any aspiring rapper. So what stopped Ice? He signed up with SBK Records. And who has ever heard of that company? I sure haven't. It says right here that SBK paid to adopt a certain image other than his own. Which is just another clever way of saying Van Winkle was an actor playing a part. And we are on page 14. Nice record label logo. You got their SBK, Eye of Horus, check. Sigil of Baphomet, check. Talk about getting a second chance from God. Well, there it is. There's lots of gods, entire pantheons of them. That's why it's important to name your God. Nearly every Christian I've spoken with doesn't even know the name of their God, our Heavenly Father, and even if they do, they will usually refuse to pronounce it. And isn't that a shame? No, his name is not the Lord. Seems like a name is important, especially when praying to God is involved. Identification is key. And then we read this. Stephen Swid, Martin Bandier, and Charles Koppelman formed SBK Entertainment in 1989 after they purchased the music publishing division of S uh, CBS Records. CBS Songs in 1986 for $125 million. 125 big ones. CBS, so CBS Songs was subsequently renamed to SBK Songs. The name is an acronym incorporating the first letter of the founders' surnames. 
I decided to do a little extra homework, and wouldn't you know it, came to find that Charles Kopelman, Martin Bandier, and Stephen Swid formed SBK Entertainment in 1989 after purchasing the music publishing division of CBS Records in 1986 for $125 million, and I checked, they're all Jews. They're the ones who paid ice to adopt his sculpt sculpted image in case you were wondering, and knowing is half the battle. Another SBK record executive was Monty Lippman, also a Jew. Lippman, Lippman is the one who stated that he received calls from radio stations reporting a flood of requests after DJ David Morales flipped Play That Funky Music over in favor of its B-side, Ice Ice Baby. And so because SBK wanted Ice on the road as soon as possible, he landed a gig playing opening act to Arsenio Hall's homeboy, MC Hammer. Yo, VIP, let's kick it. Have you even watched the music video to Ice Ice Baby since 1991? I was reviewing it recently in preparation for this paper. I will link it here. and There's the link. But don't tell me I didn't warn you. Vanilla is rapping about his meticulous rhyming skills, but also his weekend in Miami at the age of 16 when he and D. Shea got into a gunfight with crackheads. That would place us in the whereabouts of 1983, if you're trying to keep track of Vanilla's timeline. In Van Winkle's masterful prose, we hear, Gunshots rang out like a bell. I grabbed my nine, and I heard, all I heard were shells. I can't rap, so sorry. Falling on the concrete real fast, jumped in my car, slammed on the gas. Right. Meanwhile, the music video claims to show real-life footage of the hood, making sure to pull a close-up on a black woman's face, supposedly for street cred. We see a white person's hand, obviously not Van Winkle's, spraying the phrase Ice Baby onto a brick wall as to claim territory for him. The worst part of the video, however, is the thin neon light emanating from Ice's body. Is it mystic ice? No, it is only a blue screen. What a shame. They couldn't even bother sending Agent Ice into the hood for the added street cred. If only they had included footage of that butt-stabbing incident. I am told the 80s was a spectacular decade for security cameras. You figure Tommy Kwan is a sort of entrepreneur and businessman to have included one in front of City Lights to identify the bad seeds for the buttons. But no, the girls would have been all over that one. So many lost opportunities. Let me reread re this. Robert Van Winkle, better known by his stage name Vanilla Ice, wrote Ice Ice Baby in 1983 at the age of 16. This is what Wikipedia actually claims. Basing its lyrics upon his experiences in South Florida, you know, on the crack uh, drives, the lyrics describe a shooting in Van Winkle's rhyming skills. The chorus of Ice Ice Baby originates from the signature chant of the National African American Fraternity Alpha Phi Alpha. Of the song's lyrics, Van Winkle stated in a 2000 interview that if you released Ice Ice Baby today, it would fit in today's lyrical respect among peers. You know what I'm saying? My lyrics aren't pup it up, go, at least I'm saying something. All right, the wiki has an article on Ice Ice Baby, and it is far more telling than I anticipated. Blink and you'll miss it. They actually accredit Van Winkle to having written the song in 1983 at the age of 16, which isn't remotely possible, seeing as how Shea is featured in the narrative, and the two didn't meet at the earliest until 1987. That's not what I wanted you to see, though. The media speaks out of both ends of their mouth. 
and the 1983 claim is just the intended hoax within the hoax. Look closer. Alpha Phi Alpha is the wink wink moment. It says the chorus originates from the signature, signature chant of the National African American Fraternity Alpha Phi Alpha. Wink wink. Remember, it is Dishay and Earthquake who supposedly dropped the beats, not Ice. Both Dishay and Earthquake, however, aren't the sharpest tools in the shed. And Alpha Phi Alpha isn't, uh, it could be Alpha Pi Alpha, so if I'm pronouncing the wrong, apologies, isn't any ordinary African-American fraternity. No, it is the first African-American fraternity. What I'm saying is not even Deshae or Earthquake are likely responsible for that song. Somebody else is. That is, unless they are Alpha Phi Alpha. We've just been given a calling card. Alpha Phi Alpha was officially founded at Cornell University on December 4th, 1906. Its founders are known as, as the Seven Jewel Brothers. I will give you their names as well as their credentials. I checked. Robert Harold Ogle and George Biddlekilly were Freemasons. Actually, Ogle was a national officer for the Benevolent Protective Order of the Elks. Kelly may have been even been a busier bee, being 33rd degree in all. Jewel Tandy's father was the Grand Master of several lodges in Lexington, Kentucky, informing us of Tandy's connections. Henry Callis' father, the Reverend Henry Jesse Callis, was a member of the Odd Fellows. Henry Chapman is not listed as a Mason, but that is a small oversight when, in fact, he is responsible for securing the Masonic Hall where they met, telling us all we need to know about, uh, telling us all we need to know about his affiliations. Eugene Knuckle Jones is not listed as being a, a Mason either, but he apparently knew their rituals. Nathaniel Murray is the only oddball of the bunch, seeing as how the only circumstantial evidence is his association to the other six Jewel brothers. And then there are the names rising from the ranks of Alpha Phi Alpha. See if you recognize any of them. Martin Luther King Jr., where <laughs> Vanilla Ice was discovered. John Mack, Reverend Joseph E. Lowry, Reverend C.T. Vivian, and Dick Gregory were all civil rights leaders. And that was an obvious intel operation. The NAACP founder, W.E.B. Du Bois, was also a member, but then so were musicians Duke Ellington, Lionel Richie, Jesse Owens was a member, Justice uh, uh, Thurgood Marshall, United Nations Ambassador Andrew Young, and Academy Award winner, winning director Barry Jenkins were all members. And that's just some of what Wiki offered me on the house. And you'll never guess who else is a fraternity brother. Are you ready for it? James Shaw Jr. Which you don't, you don't recognize the name? Come on, man. James Shaw Jr. wrestled the gun away from Travis Jeffrey Rinking during the Nashville Waffle House shooting. So glad AFIA was there to stop it. The date of the incident was April 22nd, 2018. Uh-huh. Blood and Guts Month. It's like I've always said, if you want to partner with the media and pull off a psychodramatic episode which hopes to double as a satanic ceremony via performance witchcraft, be sure to schedule a date in April. By November 14th, 1990, Ice Ice Baby had dropped to number two on the Billboard Hot 100, making way for Mariah Carey's premiere single, Love Takes Time. Perfect saying for a scandal. That very day, Record producer Frank Farian announced that he had fired Robert Pilatus 
and Fabrice Morvan from the band which he had just two years earlier formed, Millie Vanelli. In a November 16th article for the Los Angeles Times titled, It's True, Millie Vanelli Didn't Sing, freelance reporter Chuck Phillips quoted Rob Pilatus in a phone interview in which the Millie Vanelli singer admitted that neither he nor partner Fab Morvan had sung a single note on the duel's multi-million selling 1988 album, Girl, You Know It's True. <laughs> in other news, Pilatus added, they had sold their soul to the devil. Which is, I think, a direct quote from him. What has any What has any of this got to do with Vanilla Ice, you ask me? Everything. It has everything to do with Vanilla Ice. Look, I get accused of changing the subject often, and that may be true. But this isn't one of those times. Millie Vanilli is considered to be the greatest hoax in musical history. And that's ridiculous. That's what I was told, however, during a recent reconnaissance mission in The Matrix. Once again, I have yet to see anybody else put it together. That Millie Vanilli was set up to be outed as fraudsters from the very beginning. And see, that's the thing about these exposure psyops. We are being trained to think that any true conspiracy would be exposed by freelancers in the media. Wrong. The Millie Vanilli hoax is interconnected with the Vanilla Ice project in that both unraveling narratives were always intended to be so. Girl, you know it's true. You will tell me the media didn't expose anything and that Millie Vanilli had already exposed themselves on stage when Girl You Know It's True jammed and began skipping repeatedly. Well, here's what the Wikipedia has to say on the matter. Beth McCarthy Miller, then an executive with MTV, says the duo's English language skills when they came in for their first interview with the channel stirred doubts among those present as to whether they had sung on their records. The first public sign that the group was lip-syncing came on the 21st of July, 1989, during a live performance on MTV at the Lake uh, Compounds theme park in Bristol, Connecticut. As they performed, a hard drive issue caused the recording of the song Girl, You Know It's True to Jam and Skip, repeatedly playing the partial line Girl, You Know It's, Girl, You Know It's, through the speakers. I knew right then and there it was the beginning of the end of for Millie Vanelli, recalled Pilatus of the incident. When my voice got stuck in the computer and it just kept repeating and repeating, I panicked. I didn't know what to do. I just ran off stage. Did you check the date on that? It happened on July 21st, 1989. The expose from the Times wouldn't land on the shelves for another 16 months. Sure, there were people who suspected foul play, but the revealing came as a shock to their fan base. We are constantly shown the Connecticut footage as they're coming out of the closet outing events, and it wasn't. Beth McCarthy Miller was an executive with MTV, and some years later, the director of NBC's Saturday Night Live for 11 years. She mentioned as having prior knowledge to the scandal, among others at MTV, due to the duo's thick European accents and limited command of the English language, particularly in their first interview. Why didn't they say, why didn't they say anything? If I recall, was it Kurt Loder, the anchorman for MTV News in 1989? You'd think somebody at MTV would be interested in checking out the CD player to see what Millie Vanilli was playing in Connecticut, but no. After Pilatus ran off stage in a panic, pay attention to what happens next. Downtown, Julie Brown ran after Pilatus and convinced him to finish the set. With a bit of pushing and screaming and a couple of F-words, I think 
as well. I got them back out there, Brown explained on VH1's Behind the Music. Despite the mishap, the concert audience seemed neither to care nor even to notice, and the concert continued as if nothing unusual had happened. Downtown Julie Brown was an MTV VJ and the host of Club MTV, which was currently sponsoring the Millie Vanilli performance. It says she ran after Pilatus and convinced him to finish the set. Clearly, MTV wasn't in the least bit concerned about exposing anything. But then it also says the concert audience seemed neither to care nor even to notice and that the Millie Vanilli episode of Club MTV continued as if nothing unusual had happened. On February 21st, 1990, Millie Vanilli won the Grammy for Best New Artist. As if... <laughs> sound familiar? Vanilla Ice won the very trophy at the American Music Awards one year later. Reality check, the MTV... Connecticut concert had happened seven months earlier and nobody said anything. On November 20th, 1990, the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences revoked their award. To date, it's the only time that's ever happened. Are we expected to believe that NARAS hadn't posed an investigation into their best new artist prospects beforehand? They're even crossed out of the Grammy's Wikipedia page. <laughs> they actually cross out Millie Vanelli. <laughs> Look, nobody won. Also, they include a picture of NARAS President Mike Green posing with Morvan and Pilatus at the Grammy Awards rehearsal. Yes, you read that right. At the rehearsal. I checked. No other Grammy winner includes a pose with the prez. Certainly not a Grammy Awards rehearsal picture. What do you think they're trying to convey with something like that? What a joke. As Gandalf would say, A wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Everything that happened, and specifically when it happened, was intended as so. The whole thing was perfectly set up by Frank Farian, a man who, we're told, was a longtime swindler. Pilatus told Chuck Phillips at the, LA uh, at the LA Times, The last two years of our lives have been a total nightmare. We've had to lie to everybody. We are true singers. But the maniac, Frank Farian, would never allow us to express ourselves. According to Fab's version of it, he and Pilatus signed the contract without reading the fine print. Farian was only hiring them to form a, fic form a fictional band and lip sync, but they were slow at picking up on that fact. That much I can buy. My only disagreement with the official narrative is their insistence that the Millie Vanilli hoax was a one-off event. If we're to believe Pilatus and Farian, then their two years of lip-syncing for a crowded room of screaming girls was a living purgatory on their souls. That too is believable. A contract is a hell of a thing, you know. That is a lesson we are intended to learn. Be careful what you wish for. Sign your soul over to Satan for a slice of the pie, and then one day, Satan comes calling. Intel was simply letting us know the standard admission for spooks everywhere. Being in the know implies keeping your mouth shut about it all. Just look at these three clowns, Buzz Aldrin, Neil Armstrong, and Michael Collins, sitting down for the reporters. Go ahead, I dare you. Tell me they're excited to have landed on the moon and then return to tell us all about it. Keeping one's mouth shut can be a gripe, but those pesky contracts keep getting in the way. And then we read on, on Wikipedia, the real Millie Vanilli was a pop music group that consisted of some of the original singers from Millie Vanilli. 
Brad Howell and John Davis, as well as new singers G- Gina Mohammed and Ray Horton and several special guests, including Tammy T, Icy Bro, and B-Show Rockin'. The slap in her face was the group which followed the real Millie Vanilli. Singers Brad Howell and John Davis were in on the lie, having sung all the tracks for Pilatus and Ferry in on the first album, and apparently had no shame in that fact. More than likely, they too were contracted and had no choice but to roll out with the evolving psyop and smile about it. In reality, how many people do you think were in on it? The deception, that is. Think about all the sound tech guys at those shows they did, and I haven't even begun to touch upon the initiated. Speaking of which, did they seriously have the tenacity to call the real uh, Millie Vanilli album the moment of truth? You've got to be kidding me. The only moment of truth here is an Orwellian one, because that's not the only reality check that I'm detecting. Do you see what I see? Tell me, oh please tell me that isn't a Masonic apron, as well as its compass they're using for the group's emblem. I've heard legendary stories about balls of steel before, but they couldn't possibly be that bold, right? I said, I said, right? It is. The Freemasons decided to leave behind their calling card with this one. I should have known. Agent Frank Farian was simply playing the role of a swindler and a hustler. It was all part of the psyop. Looks like he did quite well for himself, too. Afterwards, Farian developed similar Eurodance groups, La Bouche and Le Click, and nobody seemed to bat an eye. Le Bouche was even signed on with RCA. If that's not enough, psychodrama for you. There's more. Believe me, you can pack a lot of psyop into this bad boy. On April 3rd, 1988, on the eve of a promotional tour for a new Millie Vanilli reunion album, Back in an Attack, Pilatus was found dead in his, see if I can pronounce this, his uh, fried Richdorf hotel room near Frankfurt. We are told it was a drug overdose, a favorite retirement tactic. Pilatus was 33 years old, but that's probably just a coincidence. Oh, so the album, which was said to feature both Pilatus and Morvan on lead vocals, was never released. How convenient. In 2021, John Davis, the real singer of Millie Vanilli, dies of coronavirus. He was 66 years old. Getting back to the Iceman. Another theme for today is the media's penchant for speaking out from both sides of their mouth. Pull back the onion layers and the lyrical writer of Ice Ice Baby, we are told, is somebody by the name of Mario Johnson, a.k.a. Chocolate. Once again, here is what Dichet has to say about it. Then there were questions about who actually wrote the lyrics. Turns out it was Brown's former collaborator, Mario Chocolate Johnson. I remember that every time I would do the music, Ice would leave and come back with some lyrics, Brown says. Now I've never actually seen Ice with lyrics. The lyrics sounded familiar, but I couldn't pinpoint who it was. According to Dichet, Vanilla would show up with lyrics intended to complement Dichet and Earthquake samples, playing them off as though he had written them. In turn, Ice would claim that he too is responsible for Dichet's beats. Notice what Dichet claims. Now, I've never actually seen Ice write lyrics. Obviously. We have established by this point that Vanilla Ice was a bare minimal, a corporate creation. They taught him how to dance. They t- told him what to sing. They bought his wardrobe. And then they had an assortment of ghostwriters pinning books, probably even magazine and newspaper interviews for him. But then notice how he involves Chocolate's contrib- uh, contributions. He doesn't. 
What he actually manages to say is, the lyrics sounded familiar, but I couldn't pinpoint who it was. He didn't have a clue where Vanilla was pulling his lyrics from, telling us that, like any good Intel PSYOP, the Vanilla Ice Project was a compartmentalized affair. Do you understand, I don't have the faintest clue who wrote those lyrics. Perhaps Chocolate is responsible. I don't know. Strange, though. Deshay was included in the Ice Ice Baby storyline, and yet he and the supposed writer were already estranged. The only reason Deshay can now claim Chocolate wrote those lyrics is because somebody along the way whispered into his ear, not his ear, but his ear, insinuating that he did. Chocolate is the reason why Vanilla Ice signed over $4 million in royalties to Suge Knight in order to help fund Death Row Records. But did he really? You will likely recall the balcony dangling story by which Ice agreed to hand over the dough originates with an interview Ice gave to ABC News. What better way to establish his street cred in Beverly Hills of all places? During the interview, Ice insisted that Chocolate never had anything to do with the song. Well, here's how Chocolate put it. Mario Johnson says, aka Chocolate, the album was actually released on Ichabod Records in 1989. I couldn't get in contact with Vanilla Ice, but the record wasn't doing any, uh, anything at the time. When the video hit BET, the record took off. If you're following, Chocolate claims to write the lyrics to Ice Ice Baby for Vanilla, but then afterwards isn't able to get in contact with Vanilla. Such a shame, when in fact everybody else who worked at City Lights including its DJ, bouncers, dancers, as well as his owner, made up Vanilla's crew. How did Chocolate lose contact with his fellow operatives? And when exactly did getting paid for his own song cross his mind? At any point during the writing process or only after he caught an airing on BET? So nice of Knight, giving a hootenanny about a city lights nobody. Here is Wikipedia's account of the balcony dangling incident. Following the success of Ice Ice Baby, record producer Suge Knight and two bodyguards arrived at the Palm in West Hollywood, where Ice was eating. After shoving Ice's bodyguards aside, Knight and his own bodyguards sat down in front of Ice, staring at him before finally asking, How you doing? Similar incidents were repeated on several occasions. Eventually, Knight sh uh, showed up at Ice's hotel suite on the 15th floor of the Bell Age Hotel, accompanied by a member of the Los Angeles Raiders football team. According to Ice, Knight took him out on the balcony by himself and implied that he would throw him off the balcony unless he signed the publishing rights to the song over to Knight. Knight used Ice's money to help fund Death Row Records. I'm leaving it up to you to read it. You may need a magnifying glass. Well, I just, uh, glass. I just read it for you. Well, I have read it and, it, and already I see a glaring inconsistency. The wiki claims only one other person accompanied Knight to Vanilla's 15th floor suit, and that he was a member of the Los Angeles Raiders football team. We are not given Miss, Mr. NFL's name, but take mental note of him being one person anyhow. Here is how Suge stor uh, the story went down for Knight according to Ice's original interview with ABC News. And this is what he says. The first time I met Suge Knight was at the restaurant in LA called Palm, Palm Restaurant. And uh, I was sitting there eating a nice meal and all of a sudden these huge guys who looked like a football team showed up. You know, it was very intimidating see, uh, to see these guys who were bigger than my bodyguards, you know, and a bunch of them. They pretty much grabbed my bodyguard and pulled him out and sat down there right next to me. How you doing? At least they got that line right. How you doing? 
I had my bodyguards who had guns, and they had their people which had guns, and they had us outpoured and outnumbered. I then insisted that Suja's boys just kept showing up wherever he went. It was at the Beverly Hills Bill Age Hotel suite later that night that Suja entered the room unannounced and uninvited with six big guys accompanying him. See what I mean? Vanilla claimed six big guys instead of one. If you don't believe me, then seek out his original interview for yourself. He said six big guys accompanied Knight into the room. That's quite the difference, wouldn't you say? Was Vanilla drunk and counting 15 fingers on one hand instead of five? Seems like nobody could get their story straight. How was Knight capable of entering Vanilla's suite anyways? We are never told. But who really cares at this point? Continuing. They roughed one of my bodyguards up. They roughed everybody else in my entourage up. Uh, Knight took me out on the balcony and started talking to me personally. So Knight wanted to show Ice just how high they were. 15 floors up. Everybody gets that part right. Ice was then given the impression that he had reached the fork in the road. Either cough up the cash and sign the paperwork or take a trip over the balcony. Again, in his words, I needed to wear a diaper that day. I was very scared. I signed them and I walked away alive. Before the balcony incident, though, Chocolate tells it like it is. And this is what he says, Mario Johnson. I remember be being at Vanilla Ice's attorney's office. I found out his album had two million pre-orders before it was released. So I knew we had a big record. Suge didn't know how to handle a big potential lawsuit like that. A record of six, seven million at the at the low end. When we started the lawsuit, the record was still climbing like hotcakes, so we needed somebody to, con to consult with us instead of just trying to do it ourselves. Hold on. I thought Chocolate was able to get in contact with Vanilla, but here we find him at Vanilla's attorney's office. Looks like he didn't have very much trouble tracking the scent of money after all. Isn't that usually where a lawsuit goes down? It is. It is the client's lawyer who shows out the big bucks, not his client. But then he claims Suge didn't know how to handle a big potential lawsuit like that. Bummer. Best to dangle Robbie Van Winkle from a balcony then. Notice what else he says though. I found out his album had 2 million pre-orders before it was released. So I knew we had a big record. My point exactly. I've said this time and again. Spooks will buy every copy off the shelf just as assuredly as they'll write the reviews ensuring success. We know the CIA has spent untold millions and millions upon purchasing their own commissioned paintings at auctions just to make Americans think crappy art is a precious resource. If confessed to it. By the by, they do the same thing with books and movies and music and who knows what else. Probably the poster stands in every 90s shopping mall. Gotta promote their products. I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if Vento fronted the cash for those first 2 million copies just to entice white suburban teenage girls to venture beyond new kids on the block for their next shopping mall outing. It's cyclical, you know. The money goes right back to its funders, but with interest. Kind of like the 4 million handed over to Suge Knight. And now we come to it. The Iceman's 8-month relationship with Madonna. Tommy Kwan must be quite the booking agent, ensuring his client uh, several pages in her sex book. Madonna probably heard about his encounter with Suge Knight and needed a real man in her life. Otherwise, how in the world does something like that happen? Ice and the material girl. It doesn't. Well, it did. 
but only because Madonna was looking for movie parts and Intel decided to send her agent their latest script. In 1990, she played the part of the, the horror in Disney's Dick Tracy, already being well-researched in the subject, obviously. IMDb lists another role for Madonna in a 1991 Woody Allen movie called Shadows and Fog. Spoiler, she plays herself in that one, too. Shadows and Fog also stars Mia Farrow, among other spooks. Farrow had been married to Frank Sinatra decades earlier. Specifically, she played her part in the Roman Polanski-Manson murder hoax before the 60s were over. But let's not get distracted. I checked to see if the Vanilla Ice Project was listed in Madonna's acting resume, and it wasn't. Not that I've ever claimed IMDb is perfect. Here is how America's Sweethearts uh, reportedly met. How they met. According to Mr. Ice himself, Madonna came after him at one of his shows in New York City in the early 90s. She's aggressive. She wanted me, he said on an episode of the Dan Patrick Show. She was much older. So I was like, whoa, what's going on with this? She came into the dressing room right after the show. She grabbed me and we were having cocktails that night. Note, Ice's mention of his and Madonna's slight age difference is a press tour favorite of his. Essentially, they picked up on one commonality. So, at a concert then, turns out I was totally wrong about the night encounter being the cause of a hot and heavy. Madonna simply heard a white rapper had come to town and couldn't keep her dirty paws off of him. The article was from InStyle magazine, and so, knowing what we do with the narrative, their added notice telling. Ice's mention of his and Madonna's slight age difference is a press tour favorite of his. Madonna was born on August 16, 1958, making her nine years older and 33 at the time of the meeting. This is just a side note to the fact that Ice dangled his relationship with Madonna for the press like a furniture piece. It was set up to give his own career that added boost. From what I could find, the claim that Madonna met Ice at one of his shows did not originate from when van winkle's mouth until two decades later and some change apparently like we have seen with the night story he forgets the finer details immediately after they happen but then crystallizes each memory with stunning clarity as the passing years roll on here is how the press originally dramatized their meeting madonna also thought vanilla ice was cool the material girl met the vanilla rapper while he was filming the movie cool as ice Madonna and I started going out together. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but. Quite a change of scenery, wouldn't you say? Every older source that I can find has Ice and Madonna meeting on the set of his movie, Cool as Ice. How come no two sources can get their stories straight? Vanilla Ice was the one doing the interviews, not Madonna. It is because Vanilla Ice was on drugs? The Roger Rabbit, I think it was. That must be it. Crack addictions are a gripe. Or is it heroin? Where, sh where, would the where would the news even get that little tidbit about their meeting on a movie set of all places anyways? From the horse's mouth is where. Even here, Vanilla Ice is, is the one painting the broad strokes of the relationship. Madonna was apparently the jealous stalker, calling him up at all hours into the night, wanting to know if another girl was in his bed. Right. Vanilla Ice told a UK reporter in 1990, acting like his casual agent self, that he had no time for girls being so busy making records and touring and all that. Contrarily, I'm sure Madonna had nothing going on with all those movies and music videos in that sex book of hers, probably had nothing else to do but obsess over the Iceman all night. And there they are, the City Lights crew, minus Chocolate, of course. Chocolate missed out on all the fun. Except for that one time when he hung out in the lawyer's office with Suge. Good times. The date is January 28, 1991, and that is Tommy Kwan, all right. Finally, the mystery man, one of the only pictures I can locate of him online. 
If you're having difficulty fingering the Asian, he is wedged between the Iceman and Earthquake. Vanilla is accepting his first of two trophies for the night at the 33rd Annual American Music Awards. He is quite possibly speaking those iconic words into the microphone, which were bleeped out on the West Coast. To the people that try to hold me down, kiss my white butt. Very poetic, Vanilla, as usual. Thank you for speaking into our lives. Come again. It was on the following night that Vanilla sat down with Arsenio Hall. That's how I ended up writing this paper, you know. Revisiting my tenure in the fourth grade when ice was the talk of the tetherball court was never my intention. But here we are having this conversation. The way this happens is that one intel hoax leads to another, as you will know by now. I was finishing up with the Tanya Harding, Nancy Kerrigan psychodrama and decided to comb through 90s nostalgia when I stumbled upon the interview which Ice gave with Arsenio Hall. I was completely flabbergasted. That interview is considered to be the souring point in his career when the milk carton went bad and it was so obviously scripted. Do me a favor and watch this episode. You can't watch this in the video, but uh, it's linked here. And then tell me if you think this wasn't staged. It involves an actor, scratch that, somebody standing in the back of the audience protesting the lack of gays on Arsenio's show. Arsenio literally stops his stand-up routine to speak with the heckler, who just so happens to speak up at the perfect segue. Arsenio quips, you think, you think I haven't had somebody on this show because they're gay? What's wrong with you, man? I'm black. Arsenio takes his glasses off for effect. I'm black, man. Arsenio pauses for audience applause. I'm black, man. I'm the biggest minority that you know about. I don't want to hear that dang trash, man. I've got gay friends that I've had on this show. Because you don't know them or they aren't who you want on this show. You got a problem with it. If you want to book it, get yourself a show. Now sit down, sit down so I can do this show. You've had your say and I've had mine. You can imagine the whole crowd, you know, going crazy, psycho crazy. The entire incident plays off like an episode of Donahue, which is to say it's totally staged. His studio audience responds appropriately at all the right moments. Their applause begin and then ends and then begins again as if beckoned by a cue. There is nothing uncomfortable about the situation at all. Nobody in the audience appears in the least bit concerned with the intruder. Their smiles give it away. Are you not entertained? Arsenio Hall was, of course, taped at Stage 29 at Paramount Studios in Los Angeles, but the Hollywood uh, sales tactic was to convince you that everything going down on the stage was somehow legitimate. Why is Arsenio Hall slipping us the 666? I mean, most celebrities roll out the eye of horses or sign of success in random photo shoots, but on the poster? Seems a bit excessive, if you ask me, and desperate. A black man's gotta eat, I suppose. As a 10-year-old in 1991, I never would have looked at nor thought twice about something like that. But now we find ourselves in the third decade of what they tell us is the 21st century, and you'd have to be vaccinated and... That make give me trouble. And subscribe to... Well, I won't say it, but meds to not see his hand in front of his face. Get it? His hands in front of his face. Truth in plain sight. Even our controller supplies with jokes, and this is one of those occasions. As I was saying, if I had to define a turning point in Ice's rise and fall from the starry realm, then the Arsenio interview appears to be it. Sure, the media had already outed Vanilla Ice as a suburbanite Robbie Van Winkle by then, but on the night after winning two awards for Best New Artist in Town, it is Arsenio who was chosen to put the mismatched 
puzzle pieces together and expose him as a fraud. Spooks, of course, swim in the same circle, and Arsenio was good friends with the very person who Vanilla had toured with only months earlier, MC Hammer. That, too, plays into the narrative. Their interview couldn't have started out any less awkward. Ice begins their meeting by unexpectedly calling upon Flava Flav, who just so happened to be hanging around backstage. Absolutely no time was wasted before Flava Flav was capable of stepping out for the cameras and embracing Ice with a, with a hug. Scripted. But we'll get to that in a moment. After excusing Flava Flay from the stage, a clearly annoyed Arsenio then brings up his kiss my white, white butt statement on the night prior. Ice responds, to which Ars Arsenio again asks, so this is a white rapper being suppressed sort of revenge. From this point forward, the gloves come off, but also the intended agenda, which is rehearsed in practically every Ice interview that I could find, is finally driven home. Ice tells Arsenio the following. I'm bringing rap music to an audience that's never heard it before. I'm bringing it in front of people that never considered listening to rap music. And now they're considering it. And it's bringing rap music up. Rap music is here to stay. To which, at the flip of the same coin, Arsenio responds, I know a lot of black rappers are probably angry because some of the white people screaming didn't buy rap until you did it. Until they saw a vanilla face on the cover of an album. Check and check. Outlining the intended aims behind the Vanilla Ice Sigh only continues going forward. Arsenio suggests the obvious that Ice brought Flava Flav out to prove he had a black supporter apart from his City Lights crew. Check. Never mind the same flow of logic, which would deduce that Flava Flav was hustled into the deed by his white controllers. Check. And then there are Vanilla's previous snipes at MC Hammer to the press. I have never said anything bad about MC Hammer, Ice insists. That's not true, Arsenio, Arsenio interrupts. I have an audio tape. To this effect, Ice admits that the rivalry sold records. Check. About the National Motocross Championships, of which the press can find no evidence. I won three national championships, Ice insists. If you've been paying attention, the Motocross National Championship was another Van Winkle invention. Like everything else that is invented in our day-to-day -day perception of reality. The difference here is that Intel was telling us they do it all the time. Check, check, and again I say, check. The lesson to be learned, boys and girls, once again derives from Vanilla, who, after already being exposed by the media, that he had indeed derived from an affluent suburban upbringing, despite being sold otherwise, quips to Arsenio, it doesn't matter. It ain't where you're from, it's where you're at. Bottom line, don't believe the hype. Did you get that? Read it again and again if need be. Where he is at is an invention. His very origins are an invention. Also, don't believe anything you're told. They're all lies. How very Orwellian of him. What is certain is that, is that open season on Vanilla Ice had finally begun. It was February 10th, 1991. Uh, it was the February 10th, 1991 episode of In Living Color that laid it out there on the laundry line. Some would say it was Jim Carrey's finest moment on the show. Just look at the lyrics. I'm a little teapot, short and stout. Come on, Vanilla Ice, break it out. I told the world I was st stabbed in the butt, but it was a toilet paper cut. We are being told the truth, a partial truth, but still a truth nonetheless. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, these things need repeated. Vanilla Ice was an invention, a corporate invention as well as an Intel PSYOP, but that is only the partial truth when in fact the entire media narrative is a movie script.
If you dare to sit here and tell me Cool as Ice was a box office bomb, earning only $1.2 million from a $6 million budget, thereby proving the Vanilla Ice narrative was never intended to take a turn for the worse, then you are wrong. Intel will shell out money to convince us good art is bad art, and they could have just as easily dumped money into ticket sales on this joyride to amp up the product, but no. The rise and fall of Vanilla Ice was planned all along, and this is what we need. Initial development for the film began after re record executives at SBK learned about Ice Cube's involvement in Boys in the Hood and wanted to create a film project for Vanilla Ice to capitalize on the success of his debut album. Filming began in April 1991. The role of Kathy was offered to Gwyneth Paltrow. Her father, Bruce Paltrow, forbade her from accepting it because he thought it could hurt her career. There are nuggets to be found on nearly every Wikipedia article. You just have to know where to look for it. It is Wiki's Cool as Ice article where we come to learn that the Vanilla Ice movie was intended to compete with the Ice Cube movie from the very get-go. How adorable. Getting back to what I was saying, Cool as Ice was put out by Universal, and filming didn't even begin until April of 1991. The timing of its production would prove a problem for any movie studio. Vanilla Ice had not only become a laughingstock by then, but the media had already gone out of their way to prove him a corporate creation. By April of 1991, Vanilla Ice was done. What would, why would Universal even greenlight a doomed project? The only person who apparently wasn't in the know was poor little Gwyneth Paltrow. We are told she desperately wanted a part in the movie. I'm sure there were still many little girls who wanted to lip lock with the leading man in a Vanilla Ice movie. So why tell us about Gwyneth? Perhaps there is meaning to be found in Gwyneth's father, who refused her a part on the basis that it would hurt her career. Wink, wink. FYI, Bruce Paltrow was a Brooklyn-born Jew. You figure he and the people at SBK had a talk at one time or another. To divert the impending disaster, Paltrow had Gwyneth cast in Steven Spielberg's 1991 vehicle, Hook. If only Van Winkle had won the role of Rufio. So many lost opportunities. I leave you with what is debatably Vanilla Ice's greatest lasting imprint on the American culture. His stint in the second Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. A role wherein he played himself in which he had been amping up since the peak of his career. This is the movie where Corey Feldman did not return to voice Donatello after pleading no contest to a drug possession charge in December 1990. Uh-huh, yeah, New Line Cinema ditched Fieldman and cast a dude who rapped a song about a drug run gone wrong in Miami instead. That makes sense. The film was released on March 22, 1991, bookending Ice's short run. So, at what point do you suppose filming began? Ice Ice Baby didn't even go number one until November 3rd, 1990, four months earlier. Can you even get a $25 million movie made in that short run? Between Ninja Turtles and Madonna, Tommy Kwan was one rocking agent. For the movie's soundtrack, Vanilla Ice simply changed the Go White Boy chant, a formula which had originated among his crew in City Lights, to Go Ninja. Obviously, we are watching a true poet at work. The Wikipedia delivers yet another nugget when reminding us that Ice played himself but then adds, in terms of the plot, the song was to trick the audience into believing the fight was a harmless show, and thus not to panic. Hence the Vanilla Ice Project in a half show, Turtle Power. Perhaps as a child, I would have dazzled, uh, I would have been dazzled by the Iceman busting his moves in a turtle movie had my introduction to Jim Carrey just one month earlier 
not been his imitation of him. And that concludes my paper on Vanilla Ice. Uh, thank you for everybody who sat through that. And uh, I hope that was actually informative. And uh, just to show, you know, because everyone talks about, you know, 9-11 or Sandy Hook or all these different events. And they don't always think about just the day-to-day -day things, you know, the things that inform our reality and how they're just pushed out there and in the, the media, the music and everything. And uh, hopefully that made sense for everybody. I'm done for the night. I'm exhausted. <laughs> <laughs>